Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz best known for directing and producing the Sundance documentary, Kusama Infinity. Our special guest today, award-winning filmmaker Camilla Hall, will discuss her documentary, Subject, which premiered at Tribeca in 2022. The film explores the life-altering experience of sharing one's life on screen through the participants of five acclaimed documentaries and ponders the ethics and responsibility inherent in documentary filmmaking. Jennifer Teixeira and Camilla Hall are the co-directors and producers of Subject. They met at the Tribeca Film Festival during the premieres of their previous films, A Suitable Girl by Jennifer and Cop Watch by Camilla. They formed a connection based on their filmmaking experiences and their feelings about the industry and decided to co-direct Subject. Thank you, Claire, so much for the introduction, and thank you, Camilla, for being here. I'm super excited to discuss your film today. And um, for anyone who hasn't seen Subject yet, I would like to give you the opportunity to explain what it's about in your own words. And as part of that, it would be great if you could talk a little bit about the word subject as it pertains to documentaries and what makes that problematic. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to be here today. And I'm calling in from London, so it's really lovely to have the opportunity to chat with you. Um, so Subject is really a documentary about documentaries. I think we as as filmmakers take a lot for granted in terms of the kind of assumed knowledge of what takes place in making a documentary and how, how they're made and what it's like to be in a documentary. And we felt like it was important to really kind of go a level deeper and, and explore that and also kind of explain and share that with documentary film fans and audiences around the world, really kind of peeling back a layer and saying, this is what a documentary is and this is what it looks like if you're in one. And these are the questions that filmmakers are asking themselves about the process. And the word subject, it's kind of interesting. It, it really was the title from the very beginning of this whole process. It the word itself is is so loaded. Um, the idea that we call a person a subject, they become almost this kind of chemistry experiment, um, this kind of inanimate object. Um, and so it, it just felt like the word was so provocative in itself that this was a great starting place to start exploring really the ethics of, of documentary filmmaking. Yes, it is. It's a hot topic right now that the, what, you know, language in general. Um, so once you did the film, could you talk a little bit about the process of how you got started? Absolutely. I mean, one of the key kind of moments in terms of the film actually coming together was really one of those organic out of the blue moments that 
all of my favorite films that I've worked on kind of come about this way somehow. But I received an email from a friend of mine, and it was introducing me to Margie Ratliff, who is one of the participants of The Staircase, which was a major Netflix series, true crime series that came out a few years ago. And Margie was going to be in L.A. in town, and she wanted to talk to people working in documentary because she wanted to start working in documentaries and she'd studied filmmaking at university and she wanted to transition more into producing. And so we sat in a cafe in LA and I met with her and I said, Margie, I know this is crazy timing, but I've been thinking about this idea. It's called subject. It's about what does it mean to be in a documentary? And at the same time, you've been introduced to me in this kind of exact moment in time um and so we sat in a coffee shop in LA and we talked through the idea and she said you know well I never thought I'd ever be in a documentary ever again but this is something that I feel really strongly about and I want people to understand what it's like to be on the other side of the camera so I really think that that meeting was just key to the whole project happening um and really kind of gave me I felt the green light to kind of to move forward Wow, that I can see how that was a pivotal turning point, especially um, given the you know the dialogue about uh, that particular documentary in your documentary. That's very compelling. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, how long was your initial wish list of possible participants, and was there anyone you really hoped would be in the film that declined for one reason or another? If you're able to discuss that. Yeah, I mean, I think we we always wanted around five films that was quite clear so we weren't reaching out to hundreds of, of films we really the kind of criteria really started with films that we had loved um, these were films that we both Jen and I as co-directors just felt had moved us in some way or another I know Hoop Dreams was for example the film that made Jen want to make documentaries and for me you know Capturing the Freedmans was a film that I still remember going to see it in the theater when it was released and I was pretty young at the time and I just remember being so confounded and confused and just it was the first time I'd really considered truth in the way that now we're so used to with this this true crime genre but that was the first time I ever experienced it and it stayed the experience stayed with, with me for such a long time um but there were there were other films that we were really you know, really interested in and intrigued by um, one of those was American Movie, which we were just very interested to understand, you know, what Mark's experience was like being in that film, given that it's um, he's obviously a film director as well. So it's a very meta documentary. So we, we really would have, we, we, we maintained a dialogue with Mark, but we would have loved to um, also look at American Movie and we also considered uh, Queen of Versailles, which we thought was another very interesting film to look at. And one of the things that we came across as we were trying to put together this, you know, this group of films that would sit alongside each other was the kind of lack of, of strong women in documentaries historically. And we really struggled to find strong female characters. Um, so often the female characters that we were thinking about, they were often ridiculed in documentaries or kind of some, for example, like tabloid. Um, these were documentaries that weren't exactly celebrating somebody, but they were really kind of, um, you know, the women were, were often the laughingstock of the film. So 
we really struggled to find strong female characters that we wanted to be a part of subject. Um, but we we definitely considered Queen of Versailles, and um, we ended up not including that in the film. Well, I'm glad you brought up that issue. I actually teach documentary film, and when I um, initially got a syllabus for a class I was to teach, there, there was not one single film directed by a woman. Um, and I actually now teach a class on documentary spying about women, which has been, you know, really exciting for me. And it's um, nice to hear you acknowledge that that issue. And, of course, it's great that there's more people like you out there making um, films now. Um, so, um, without and, it, and in subject, that was also, you know, the, the films, The Wolf Pack, obviously directed by Crystal Moselle, um, a female director, mm-hmm. and also The Square, uh, Jahan Nujem. So, so the people that were directing films, well, it was also really important to us to have, you know, diversity in that as well. Yeah, that's great to hear. So in in your documentary, only past documentary participants are interviewed, not the directors um, of those films. And I was wondering if you could talk about that decision and if you got any um, pushback from the directors and or producers, especially because, you know, films that were shot, you know, a long time ago, um, the, the, the directing and producing teams, their thoughts on all sorts of ethical issues may have evolved over time, you know. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think we we really talked about it a lot in the in the making of the film about that decision, and we really felt that you know through the release of a film, through Q and A's, press interviews, it, it feels like the director's perspective is is quite well understood. Um, yet with the participants, typically, you know, the way that they are kind of given that space, um, you know, there's kind of very clear parameters of a what they are going to say and not going to say, and um, they don't have the same, necessarily the same level of, of confidence um, to speak freely about their experience. Um, so we felt like this was a really unique opportunity to create a platform where the participants were in charge. Um, actually, the core participants of subject are also co-producers of the film, and they also had final say over their own sections in the film. So we were really trying to challenge this power dynamic that we see that a lot of directors have over the participants of their films, that there's this almost this kind of ownership. Um, so it's really important to us to reach out to the participants directly and not via the directors of the films because we wanted them to have really have their own agency over whether they wanted to be a part of this. And then we addressed letting all the directors know in each case however the participants kind of wanted that to happen and then we actually shared the rough cut of the film with all of the directors of the original films and they were able to give notes and feedback and share their thoughts with us so I think it was a really meaningful process for us um, in terms of you know we weren't out there to point fingers at anyone um you know we chose these films because we absolutely love them we we call it a love letter to our industry and our community and what we wanted to talk about was systemic questions and issues that we all face and so we've actually had a lot of support from the directors of the original films i know steve james recently had us into had jen into his class and shared the film with his own students um in chicago We've had a lot of support, but I think the key to getting the film to where it was was that we really took time in the edit 
So, you know, with that rough cut, we went to the participants of the film first, who obviously saw and fed back on, on the film. We went to the original directors of the films. We went to all of the experts who were interviewed in the films. And then we went to our own filmmaking community and we got as much feedback as we could. So I would say maybe up to 100 people gave feedback on the cut before we locked the picture. Wow, it sounds um, like a very well thought out process. So I applaud you for for all of that. It's super interesting. Um, So what do you personally think streamers, audiences, actors, and others should take into account about true crime and other potentially delicate biographical elements? And I guess I kind of want to stress true crime because right now that's such a industry and – it just seems like there's just so much of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. One of the really interesting phrases that came out of one of our Q&As, um, we were at a theater in, in the UK doing a tour of the UK, and this idea of conscious consumption came up. And it was really this idea that, you know, we think about what we eat, we think about what we wear, we think about the source of so many different things that we deal with in our lives, but we're not really analyzing, like, what are we watching? What are we consuming? What are we putting into our bodies at night before we go to sleep? If we're watching murders and um, rapes and, you know, these incredibly traumatic stories before we go to bed at night, like, what is that really kind of doing to us as individuals? How is it affecting our behavior? And then on the other hand, just this like very simple message to remember that these are real people. And I think when you see someone on the television, all of us do it. It's just this natural kind of inclination that that's, it's almost like that's a character. That's a, that's like you lose this empathy and connection to that being a real person. And I think that that can kind of, when we're dealing with true crime specifically, it's really just remembering, like, this is just a person that has gone through a, a terrible trauma it's not a character to talk about at the water cooler. It's not a fiction film. This is somebody's real life. And, you know, just really thinking about the way these films are made and watching them and, and trying to think, is that, you know, does this feel good when I watch it? Does it feel like it's really um, coming out to, uh, you know, as a wish of, of the family that's involved? Or is this just a kind of a way to make money for a production company? Um is there an exploitation of trauma that I'm watching? So it's just, it's really kind of trying to give people the tools to just think more critically about what they're consuming because given that everything is, is being sold to us by algorithms, the more we consume of it, the more of it's going to get made. So we do, as audience members, have some control over what we're going to be watching going forward. So my message would be watch less <laughs> true crime. Have um, you ever heard the term, I've only heard it used once, um, true justice to apply to some of these films where they have actually helped um, get a you know, wrongfully incarcerated person out of jail or that kind of thing versus just the kinds that are sort of, um, you know, covering very, uh, you know, graphic and troubling material and, and, and seemingly in a celebratory way sometimes. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, the idea of these, these some of these films that have actually helped, um, you know, free people and things like that? I think there's, there's many, you know, noble films and series within the genre, and I think there's incredible examples of films that really teach you about the justice system. You know, they're essentially kind of 
luring you into actually a very educational experience, but through, you know, a riveting story. And I think that there are some of these series and shows that really kind of hit the mark and do the work to treat the participants ethically and also kind of have some kind of reasonable purpose for why that show is existing. Um, so, yeah, I think there are definitely examples of, of projects within the genre that are really important and meaningful. Um, and I also think, you know, it, there, there's always room for entertainment. I think it's just remembering that, you know, am I just entertaining myself on someone else's trauma? Um, and how do I feel about that? And maybe you feel totally fine. And that's, you know, it's a kind of everyone's individual choice, I think. It's just a kind of reminder just to maybe think about it and, and check how you feel about it. Yeah, I think it's a, an excellent point. Um, uh, so uh, there, there, I, I want to jump in and say so many things, but we have to keep the interview moving. So with that being said, um, what kind of ethical obligations do you think that streamers have, both to the people whose live stories are told in the film space screen and to the filmmakers who produce the documentaries? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a very hard it's very hard to give like specific kind of rules over how the streamers should behave. I think it's very interesting. For example, in the UK where I'm based, the streamers are outside of the regulatory framework that the broad, the public broadcasters face. So there's a regulation, you know, regulatory body called Ofcom, and the streamers sit outside of that, which is very interesting because it means that they don't have to follow the same rules as the other broadcasters. And so I, I think there are a lot of question marks over the kind of playing field that has been created through the rise of the streamers and how different that is to what documentary had been up until that, which was very public broadcast dominated. It was pretty regulated until really the rise of HBO and then out of HBO later, then we find that the, obviously the, the streamers um, coming out of that. So it's hard to say exactly what the obligations are, but I think it's what we're seeing, I think, is, you know, sensationalism being the most important, you know, bar for a documentary. And the more sensationalist, the better. And it feels like that is being put above ethics, um, bigger questions about how people are being treated, whether it's the rights of the filmmakers, like we're seeing with the strikes, or whether it's the rights of the participants and, you know, how their stories are being used and commoditized and how they're affected by that. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, ethics, being ethical is more expensive. You need therapists on set. You need time rushing anything as soon as something has like a rush timeline for delivery that is when all of the ethics go out the window so all of the pressures to shrink budgets you know that is where the ethics go out the window so i think it's just i think the streamers can be part of changing things i think they're open to conversations and i think it's just about having a continued dialogue between participants filmmakers stakeholders and and the streamers and hopefully create a a less exploitative space. Yeah, that's it's super helpful um, insight. When you were recording interviews for the 
absolutely certain would play a key role in the documentary. Uh, Heather, let me just jump in here real quick. Uh, You broke up just a little bit on your question. Could you repeat it? Oh, yes. Um, When you were recording interviews for the film, is there anything that anyone said that really stood out to you that would certainly play a key role in the documentary? Yeah, I I think there's one phrase by Joe Brewster, who is an incredible filmmaker who has a brilliant film out this year um, with his wife, Michelle Stevenson. Um, But Joe made this comment, like, this is a war. Like, this is a battle of information. And the quotes along those lines. And at the time, I remember Jen and I, we, we heard the line and... We thought, okay, this is Joe's being a bit radical, like this is a little extreme. And then, you know, frankly, like two years on from that interview now, it's like that's what it feels like. It feels like we're fighting for the survival of independent documentary. It feels like we are literally on the front lines of survival to keep making independent, artistic, mindful films um, because you know, we're really kind of at a precipice right now. And so I think it's almost, it's not exactly the answer to your question, but it was a phrase that at the time hit us as profound but radical. And then now we feel like we're sitting exactly in that space and kind of how Joe had already seen kind of what was going to play out. It was just really, really interesting. And it's still such a poignant phrase that, that I'm so glad we put in the film. Yeah, I agree. Um, one of the um, controversial topics in this film is the issue of compensating people in documentaries and if they should be um, compensated. And obviously the range of participation varies tremendously as your film you know, discusses. Um, so, for example, there may be an expert in an interview who's interviewed for, you know, a short amount of time, like an hour, and, and in fact, their participation may benefit their career. There may be someone in the street who's asked a single question, while, of course, others are heavily featured and the films revolve around them and intimate details of their life. And in your documentary, it suggested that um, filmmakers can compensate um, people um, they're making films about for their archival materials. But in the case of Cinema Verite films, there may be no archival materials. And I was wondering what you thought was fair in those cases. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, every single film has different circumstances. I mean, that's the reality. So there's no one size fits all for every documentary. Like even the word documentary itself, like our genre has become so expansive, which is also almost like part of the challenge of trying to create some kind of ethical code around what we're doing because these films are so different to each other. Um, But I think what we're trying to say is we should all be asking the question, is it right that the people that I'm filming are compensated and what is the um, appropriate compensation and how do I go about that and how do I get my stakeholders to support that? There are some times where it's not appropriate to compensate. There might be a legal case that's unfolding that if it's revealed that people receive money to take part in the documentary, it may affect their legal position. I mean, I think there are examples, there's investigations into major public figures where, again, it would be totally inappropriate to pay the main participant 
but we have to ask the question and as directors I feel like it's our responsibility to ask the question and know what our answer is and be comfortable with that answer. If your decision is not to pay your participants, that is an absolutely fine decision, but but why is that the case and what is the reasoning behind it? And is that a fair reasoning or is that just based on your own interests? I think with independent filmmaking, it's somewhat easier to say, look, it's possible at the beginning of making a film that there is no budget. Like with Hoop Dreams, there is no budget to pay the participants of the film and we don't want to rule out um, different, we don't want to rule out filmmakers making films who don't have a pocket full of cash to be able to pay people at the beginning of making a documentary. We understand that is not how documentaries are made. So what you can do is say, look, if this film makes profit, if it becomes profitable and we all benefit from your story, then you're going to be a part of that with me. And I think that, you know, for me personally, when I started making documentaries 10 years ago, you know, that was my instinct without any knowledge of the genre. My instinct was to to share um, with the participants of the film. And it, it didn't cross my mind kind of not to do that, to be honest. Um, so I think a lot of the current status quo is kind of hiding against, hiding behind these ideas of like journalism and documentary is journalism. And, and this idea is really at the crux of some of the hardest questions around compensation. It's this kind of morphing of the genres and then applying rules for journalism on documentaries. And, and I think for Jen and I, we've talked so much about this issue and had so many interesting conversations. We still don't know what the answer is, but we are seeing some shifts and changes in the way that broadcasters and other people are starting to understand how these two kind of genres can coexist. Yes, it's certainly complex. And as you said, each film has such unique circumstances. Like, for example, if someone's making a film about a topic like global warming and they pay people who are in the film who are discussing it, I can understand how audiences may wonder if they really believe what they're saying or if they're motivated by money. I mean, just as one of just many examples. If I'm not mistaken, PBS, still has a policy that they don't air documentaries where the people in them have been paid. I, I could be wrong about that, but I believe that's true. And I wonder if you know anything about that and if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I know that, well, what's actually interesting is that PBS have been undertaking a massive overhaul of their guidelines and they're actually really, um, they're really have been looking into this like for the past year as far as I'm aware I know that Jen has been a part of reworking their guidelines alongside them and I know that ITVS as well is doing a huge amount of work directly with participants including Margie so I'm not exactly sure if that's still the case at PBS but I do know that they are very actively listening having the conversations doing very in-depth research and actively changing and working on their guidelines. They may have released them already, I'm not sure, um, but I know that it's in process. Well, that's super interesting. Yeah, I look forward to seeing what their um, guidance is on that. I've also heard filmmakers talk about things like setting up scholarships to benefit um, film participants and um, the causes they champion and things like that, as opposed to, you know, paying a, a certain fee. But in any event, yes, it's it's 
complicated and it's a very interesting topic. Um, so obviously your film deals with some of the documentary um, films that have had great success, um, you know, financially and otherwise. Um, but as you know, many indie filmmakers do struggle to fund their films. And I was wondering if you could talk about how funding came together for this film. A hundred percent. I mean, we, this is very much an indie film. And I think we started this film, how many people start their films. And I, I hope it gives some kind of inspiration to people who are stuck in the thick of it right now. Um, but really, we started out, I mean, the very first thing we edited, I think with Margie, there's a big scene with Margie in the film. It was the first day of shooting. Um, it was just, I think I scraped together enough money for, you know, my DP. And um, we did one day and then Jen, my co-director, came on the film and she edited that into the most beautiful scene. And Jen is an incredible editor. And from there, we kind of used that material to get more people on board, to understand what we were trying to do. And really, the first kind of few months of filming, the our team, many of them worked on deferral. Our DOP, Zach Shields, worked on deferral so that we could make this happen. I mean, we... Jen's mom is an air hostess, was an air hostess at the time. So she, we literally flew on standby um, on air hostess airline employee tickets to be able to get to our interviews. Um, I mean, we pulled like every single relationship, friendship, you know, we slept on sofas, couches, like whatever we could um, to make it happen. And then having a co-director as well, you know, when there was like some financial burden at the beginning, Jen and I were able to share that, um, you know, equally. And that also really, really made it possible. And then when we felt that we had enough material, again, just Jen's background as an editor was such a key part of this. We were able to pull together something really, really powerful. And um, we essentially only took it to the only people that saw what we had are the people that actually invested in the film. So we, we really kept it very, very quiet. We didn't tell people, we didn't go to pitch forums and we made it very clear that this was like a very unique opportunity to be a part of as a, as a financier or as an investor. And so all of those conversations just happened very organically. We met with S3, who's Logan Snyder and Joe Caterini. They were our first exec producers. Uh, we met with them and over the course of multiple months, they agreed to to give us our very first you know equity funding for the film and then after that we met with Alex and, and Gary Lieberman and they saw a rough cut of the film at that point and um, they decided to to invest and then Time Studios was our last partner they came in right at the end right before we got into Tribeca and really their funding was all about the launch of the film and the beginning of the impact campaign and you know, Lauren Hammonds and Ali, Ali Jones at Time Studios, these were people that we had known or been connected to for over a decade. So Lauren Hammonds, REP, he was the person that walked out and introduced my first film, Copwatch, at Tribeca. Again, Jen and I had this amazing, these amazing experiences through Tribeca, and so we both knew Lauren really well. And Ali had actually been the mentor of Rita Baghdadi, who's our partner at Lady and Bird in our company. And so just it was just a very organic process, um, but we we chose to keep the project very close to our chest and very private. And it, I think, every time we presented it, it 
felt like a kind of a quite a unique opportunity to be a part of. Well, I'm so glad you were able to pull it off. Um, <laughs> currently, as you know, there are historic strikes going on in Hollywood amongst both writers and actors. But as you know, documentary filmmakers have no guild and no union. Um, although filmmakers at a handful of successful production companies have recently unionized. Um, can you imagine a system where documentary filmmaker making is more sustainable for more people? And if so, what is your vision for that? Oh my gosh. I dream about it every night. Um, I definitely <laughs> dream and imagine it, but more often than not, I'm in nightmare land. Um, you know, the, the, the system right now is, is just extremely, extremely broken. And so one can kind of, you know, we're having a lot of a lot of people having conversations and very key stakeholders and, you know, private funders and people are really trying to understand how do we kind of break and reform what we have into something more equitable and and um, something that can be more sustainable. But I mean, the reality right now is I do not, I do not see a space for people who are, unless you are essentially middle class, I cannot see a way for you to be part of documentary filmmaking right now. And I think that that is the most painful, horrendous situation that this industry could be in, but people are not getting paid. So if you want to make a documentary film, then you're going to be working, you know, four jobs and to be able to to make ends meet. And it's extremely, extremely hard. And I have enormous respect for everybody that is making documentaries and, and making it work, but it should not be like that. You should be paid for your work and it should be something that you can sustain yourself on. People are studying, you know, MFAs in filmmaking. These are technical, difficult skills to film, to edit, all of these different skills that are required. Um, you know, there should not be an expectation of free work. And the reality is it's, it's, it, that is the case. And we're seeing it all the time, even as established filmmakers. We're expected to do free work all the time. And it's, it's just kind of, it's so devastating, the impact of that, um, because it excludes so many people from entering the filmmaking space. Well, I'm so glad to hear you talk about the challenges because um, sometimes I feel like documentary filmmakers are very good at advocating for other people and sort of like lost causes, but not so good at advocating for themselves. And it is really um, a, a system that, that could be um, much different and, and uh, yes, much more um I don't know, take better care of the filmmakers. And I'm sure, you know, you also belong to many film organizations as I do, and it's not uncommon to be on these, um, like, webinars and group uh, meetings and so forth where people are just talking about all of their trials and tribulations and how hard it is. And, it's and yeah, and as you said, some of these people have made great work and they're very talented, and, and so it's tough. Um, Anyway, moving on, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about co-directing a documentary and um, what you think the pros and cons are of, of having having a co-director um, work with you. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think um, before I co-directed, this is the first film I've, I've co-directed, and before I'd done that, I think a lot of people had been very um, skeptical and, like, warned me off the idea of co-directing. 
and and I remember I, I always had a close friendship with TJ Martin um, and Daniel Lindsay and they're a co-directing duo and I always was just I loved their films I was always like so impressed at like how much of a unit they were and how much they complemented each other so I had examples around me of people that were just making beautiful work and co-directing and I think you know meeting Jen it was just just such I mean the film just wouldn't exist without her like it was a partnership that it just the film couldn't have happened any other way I think it um getting an indie film funded and made I mean I, I have been through that by myself as a director and it's a very lonely road and I think co-directing is really one of the most beautiful things that you can do because it is so much less lonely. You have somebody by your side for all the difficult ethical decisions, for all of the different financial decisions, for um, the creative input and in making the film you know, the best that it can be. I think you have to choose very wisely. And I think it's important not to jump in to co-directing with somebody because it really is like a marriage. I mean, if you think about Jen and I, we've been working for pretty much five years on this project. I moved to London. We've been working you know, bi, bi-continentally for multiple years now. And, you know, we we know how each other think, feel. I mean, we talk every single day. We message every single day. We know how to answer emails from each other. And I think one of the really interesting things I learned co-directing was this kind of shift of mindset from, like, the I to the we. And I think a lot of directors, it can be very egocentric as a role. And I think a lot of people um, can forget how much work everyone else is doing around them. And co-directing was just a great way to just thinking in the we all the time and understanding what it's like to communicate as a unit as opposed to an individual and really like taking that on board. And then for me, using that to build a company so now we have Lady and Bird Films with Jen, my co-director, and Rita Baghdadi, whose film Sirens I produced and we produced as a company. It's you know, such a useful skill. Like making a film takes, you know, it takes a huge family and the director is just like one part of that. So I really loved how it made me think in a different way and in a way that I think is a lot healthier. Um, but I'm sure there are some nightmare stories if if you end up teaming up with the wrong person. So I think you just have to be really careful about who you who you work with. Well, I'm glad to hear you've had a great experience and obviously made a terrific movie together. So that's, um, you know, great to hear. Um, for you, what was the biggest obstacle you had to overcome to make this movie? I mean... We could just like list them. I mean, COVID was like a massive one, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our interviews, we were kind of one of the first, amongst the first films to start shooting remotely. So that was really uh, David Bolan, one of our cinematographers. He was very quick at kind of figuring out how to film safely. And so a lot of our interviews are filmed 100% remotely with no crew on set at all. Um, and then other interviews are filmed with just a very paired back camera crew. Um, we had a wonderful DP, Tiago and Tatiana, who took over some of the shoots on the East Coast. Um, I mean, kind of at every turn where there was a huge challenge, we had some amazing individual there to kind of help us 
and be the angel to kind of guide us through. Um, I mean, obviously, fundraising is always difficult for every documentary. Uh, so, you know, Jen and I really weren't paying ourselves barely at all as we, as we were making the film. And as we prepare for our U.S. release, which is actually coming up very soon, it's yet to be announced, but, but will be announced very, very, very soon, you know, same thing. We're still working on subject, um, you know, 18 months after the, the release of the film, uh, after the, sorry, the 18 months after the premiere of the film and into the U.S. release. So it's, um, it's a, it's, this film is a, is a commitment far beyond, you know, any other film that we've ever made. It's really about continuing that conversation in a mindful way and working alongside our allies. Um, we have amazing nonprofit allies who are working in documentary film ethics um, alongside and really at the forefront. Um, Subject is really just a tool that we've created, but Pieces Loud, the Documentary Accountability Working Group, Documentality, Working Films. There are so many organizations who are working to really put these topics at the front of people's minds. And so just being a part of that has been incredible, Um, but of course taken a lot of work and, and a lot of time. Could you talk about um, the biggest obstacle to getting the film seen and if, um, you know, streamers, some of them may maybe were resistant to the message, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's really hard to say whether it's the film or the market because the, the market is so difficult for, doc, for selling documentary films. So it pretty much the kind of collapse of the independent film market in documentaries really kind of started at, Sundance in 2022 so that was for me personally roughly where I started to see things really sales slowing down massively and so subject premiered in June 2022 so it was really kind of the start of of a terrible summer for documentary film sales and it's still been very 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 slow for a lot of people so um we that there were really difficult market conditions to getting a sale and then i think the biggest kind of concern from distributors would have been around this is a film for filmmakers only and i think that's a real shame because as we've toured the film and we've shown it i mean we've been on theatrical tours across australia across 12 cities in the uk across we've been in just so many festivals across america you know what we're really seeing is this is documentary film fans who want to come to subject and want to understand more about how do you make a documentary? What's behind the scenes? What, you know, what is that kind of, they, they have very little tangible knowledge about the making of a documentary. And so this is one of the first films about that. And we just see, a, we really do see huge audiences showing up to all of our screenings. So yeah, I think that was maybe the biggest hurdle that, Streamers thought this would be for a niche, a niche audience. Um, I think we've really proven that that's not the case. And yeah, and we're really just preparing to announce our new partners for the US theatrical release, um, which will be Oscar qualifying. And yeah, we're very, very thrilled to have distribution in such a difficult market. And yeah, it's taken a year and a half of working on the impact campaign to make sure that the documentary didn't get forgotten and we didn't give up on it and you know the buyers didn't give up on it in the end either so 
it's kind of a beautiful story, really. Well, I think it's um, important that you're sharing how tough it is to get a you know a film sold, even after you've been in a you know had a really uh, strong festival premiere as you did. Um, I'm wondering what advice you would offer first-time filmmakers, potentially about ethics or about anything that you would like to to share. Yeah, I mean, I think really just. Um accessing the tools that are available so like go on the documentary accountability working group website like go on the ida website join the ida if you can like read consume everything that you can from other filmmakers about their processes um really try to build a community around you i remember i reached out blind to a lot of people that ended up becoming my mentors i tj and daniel who became friends and, and became EPs on Copwatch, ultimately my first film. It was just a cold email that like I, I was a big fan of their film. And, you know, it's kind of cheesy, but just reach out to your heroes, you know, see if they like your ideas, connect with people, like don't sit in your room and hide away, just reach out, reach out to other filmmakers, go to meetup groups, join online Zooms, like webinars, like just meet other filmmakers so that you can talk about the things that are happening in your film. I think conversation, talking about these things out loud, your fears, your concerns, what what's the right way to go. I, I just think all of that is improved when you can share that with people. Well, that's great advice. Is there anything you would like to add that I haven't asked you about already? Oh, I think you. I think you've asked such fantastic questions. To be honest. Um, you really have. I just, I would just say I'd love for people to come see the movie. It will be released before the end of the year, and all of those details are going to come out very soon. Wonderful. Could you please share your social media handles, both for the film and your personal ones, for people who want to follow along with the announcements for the film and your career? Absolutely, yeah. So it's subject.film is our um, our website, and you can find all the information about upcoming screenings, screenings near you on the website. It also links to the socials of subject, which are, I think, at subject documentary, um, which you can find on Instagram, I think Facebook. I'm not sure if we're still going on X, formerly Twitter. Um, but, yeah, all of that's available online. I'm Camilla Hall Film at Instagram. I think Jen is at Jen Teixeira at Instagram. And, um, yeah, but basically we're all kind of linked through the subject handles and subject.film really has everything on it. And then Lady and Bird Films is our production company, and you can also find a lot of information on there as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Camilla. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you. And I also want to give a shout-out to Jen. I'm sorry she couldn't make it, but great work on the film. It's super interesting, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com.
I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.